Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This episode is a lecture entitled, Which Period of Jewish History is Most Similar to Our Own? The talk was delivered in 2020 for Chabad Glen Ira as a Zoom lecture during Melbourne's lockdown period. Unfortunately, the Zoom lecture video was not recorded. However, to see the charts to which David refers, please go to the YouTube listing for this lecture, which you can find either on David's YouTube channel or on the episode webpage. Visit davidsolomon.online for more. Uh, first of all, it's nice to be back in Chabad Glenaira, even though I'm not in Chabad Glenaira, but uh, conceptually that's where we're at. And I want to thank Rabbi Groner for the opportunity of uh, being able to give a talk that I've wanted to give for quite a long time. On the topic of which period of Jewish history resembles our own, and uh, if we are going to be running around saying things like, you know, T-shirt statements like, uh, oh, you know, we can learn from history, or those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, etc., then we need to know what we mean by that statement. How can we compare different historical periods unless we have a set of considerations by which we can do that? And if we are going to do that exercise, then which period of Jewish history would ultimately mostly resemble our own? I also want to uh, just take a moment to say what I'm not going to talk about, because some of you might think that when I say which period of Jewish history mostly resembles our own, you're going to say, uh, you're going to think I'm going to talk about uh, pandemics. And there have been uh, more than one pandemic in history, so it would be possible to compare on specific topics. You might think I'm talking about any other specific topic, like the status of women or any other type of consideration that we look at thematically in Jewish history. But for the purpose of this talk, I'm looking at broad geopolitical considerations on the one hand. Where is the Jewish people in relation to themselves and to the world where are they holding in the world? And I also want to get inside the consciousness of Jewish history. And once we know a little bit of Jewish history, and I'm assuming that everyone in this room is familiar enough um, to be able to follow the things I'm talking about. Certainly, if you've ever sat uh, with me, you know, in the six-part overview that we have or any of the specifics that we've gone into, then you should be well equipped to be able to follow me on this journey because it's going to be a bit hectic. I'm going to talk about four or five different historical periods and uh, then I'm going to present uh, which one I think is probably the most appropriate. But first of all, I want to go into these considerations because they are very, very important. The more you think about this topic, the more you realise that we have to qualify what we mean when we talk about our own age and what we mean by the word resemble. And there are certain considerations we need to look at uh, from the perspective of Jewish history itself, a kind of like a Jewish history hermeneutic. What are we actually thinking when we ask these questions? Uh, 
And the first of those considerations, and it might come as a surprise to some of you, but the first consideration we're going to have to make in Jew when we compare periods of Jewish history, ours with any other, is are we existing before or after the giving of the Torah? The giving of the Torah is a momentous event in Jewish history. I'm not talking now about its objective historical representation. I realize that there are aspects of Matan Torah, of the giving of the Torah, which we assume happened in approximately uh, 1300 or so BCE, that there are some aspects of that that are kind of uh, mytho-historic. But whichever way uh, you look at it, it is a specific event that changes Jewish history. Up until the giving of the Torah, we are a family. We're first called a people in Egypt, and it's only when we come out of Egypt, really, that we are a nation, and that that nation is then given a spiritual directive. Now, it's very obvious <laughs> that, therefore, that in many ways, we can't really compare ourselves to any generation prior to the giving of the Torah, although, although, as the great sages tell us, and as the mystics certainly tell us, all of the subsequent events of Jewish history are played out in the patriarchal period in one form or another, but that belongs to the realm of exegesis. So we're, our first consideration is to realize that we're after the giving of the Torah, where things change. Things change because we have certain spiritual obligations and certain status in the world vis-a-vis uh, -vis ourselves and uh, the world and vis-a-vis -vis ourselves and God. The second consideration we would therefore have to look at as an extension of are we before or after the giving of the Torah is that uh, are we still in the biblical period? And the biblical period, and I will come back to this to touch on it a little later, because the biblical period is a period that is pretty much defined as the period when the direct word of God was revealed, meaning that there were prophets, there were validated, divinely ordained and validated prophets, that people were running around going, ah, oh, there's a prophet of God, and what he says, he's speaking in the name of God. It's not as simple as a lot of people make out. It's not like, oh, everybody was running around recognizing the true prophet. There were at any stage of the biblical period numerous prophets. The, the authentic and valid prophets that we know of now are the ones that were authenticated in hindsight. And therefore we know them to be the true prophets, as the Torah said. But... Nevertheless, people running around calling themselves prophets or not calling themselves prophets and speaking the word of God that became scripture, that's the biblical period. And that period, as you know, goes pretty much up to the last of the prophets, which happens uh, at the beginning of the second temple period. So that's another consideration. We don't seem to have prophets today, so we need to look at what uh, the impact of that is uh, are we in a period with prophets or are we in a period without prophets? But now I want to come down to something a little bit more uh, concrete and hands-on. Not, um, not that the giving of the Torah and the existence of prophecy aren't hands-on experiences, but I want to get more concrete in ways that we can really come to terms with. And the first thing we're going to have to ask ourselves is, because we look at these various stages of Jewish history in which this is sometimes the case and sometimes not the case, is, is there Jewish control over the land of Israel? Do the nation of Israel, do the Jewish people 
control the land of Israel. And here's the surprising fact, that for most of Jewish history, we have not necessarily controlled the land of Israel. We might have had access to parts of it. We might have even been the main thing going on there. But there are different definitions of the term control. And these have implications in Jewish law and Jewish history and Jewish life. I'll give you an example. The Talmud uh, talks in a couple of places about uh, differences in halacha in Jewish law depending on whether the Jews have control of the land of Israel or the Jews don't. One of the things that the Talmud tells us in an ideal sense, and ideal sense means it looks kind of like the first temple period, is that when the Jews were in control of the land of Israel, all currencies were accepted in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had an open currency policy, so whatever foreign relations were happening between different nations who recognized or did not recognize each other's currencies, all currencies were valued in Jerusalem. And in fact, when the Jews are in control of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem has its own currency. And I only mention that because that particular coin, which is a Jerusalem coin, as described by the Talmud, uh, is quite remarkable. Because on one side there's a picture of Jerusalem, and on the other side is written the words David Solomon. So I don't want to go into that uh, too much. Uh, the, the words David Shlomo are written on one side of the coin, picture of Jerusalem on the other. I'll leave that to your imagination. But that was the currency of Jerusalem. But all other currencies were valid as well. That happened, says the Talmud, at a time when the Jews have control of Jerusalem. So the Jews having control of Jerusalem, which has other halachic implications, is an important consideration. But even if we have control over the land of Israel, doesn't necessarily mean that we have sovereignty over the land of Israel. And there's a difference between being the main people in control or whether we are ultimately completely independent so that the Jewish people are autonomous to no one but themselves. And uh, one of the major differences in that is, for example, are we able as a nation, because we have complete independent sovereignty in the land of Israel, are we able to make treaties with other, with other, uh, with other powers, with other, even superpowers? Uh, and we've seen this at various stages that we're going to look at throughout Jewish history. Uh, we've had examples where we've had uh, rulers, but those rulers have been vassal kings and the general idea behind a vassal king is a vassal king has total power within their domain, but they're not allowed to do foreign policy without the approval of the higher power. Whereas that's a different situation from complete independence. And complete independence and sovereignty means that we are completely empowered to make whatever pacts we want. If we want to make a pact with Rome, we make a pact with Rome. If we want to make a treaty with uh, the United Arab Emirates, then that's what we do. If we are completely independent. And that's a separate thing from control. And that's what I'm going to be looking at a little bit in some of our candidates. And once you have the idea of sovereignty, and once you have the idea of independence, then you're going to say to yourself, well, what is the ultimate embodiment of sovereignty? So you're going to say, are we looking at a period where there is a Jewish king? In other words, not only are we completely independent, but we have taken that independence, and we have symbolized it, and crowned it, 
in the figure of an individual and that individual is going to be a king and his family is going to be a royal family and it's going to be a kingship by dynastic succession. So obviously we've had that uh, and for the most part we've had Jewish kings and obviously uh, the sovereignty of the Jewish people can really only be vested in a Jewish king. Uh, but uh, we've had kings, uh, because then we ask ourselves, well, if we're going to have a Jewish king, do, is it going to be a king of Davidic descent? And we know, we know that although there was a covenant made with David that only a descendant of King David would sit on the throne of Judah, we have had period in Jewish history where we've had kings who were not of Davidic descent. They were from other tribes, or we've had kings who were priests, and we've even had kings whose halachic status was questionable. So it's a separate question again to do we have a king, to do we have a Jewish king, to do we have a Davidic king. And we know, and, and even if we don't have a Davidic king, maybe we have candidates for a Davidic king so that we haven't actually set up the institution of the kingship yet at any particular stage that we might look at, but there are people around that could fulfill that role even in the sense of a Davidic king. For example, the entire institute of the Resh Galuta, the exilarch, the head of the exile, who was of Davidic descent, was carried through right into Gaonic times, right up until the 8th and 9th centuries. So that if, for whatever reason, we had been in a position to 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 inaugurate the kingship again, that can, those candidates would have been available. And there are other periods in Jewish history where that was not the case, where those candidates were not available. So there's another consideration. And uh, that's not a light consideration because uh, the form of governance of the Jewish people is a matter of some considerable discussion for Jews themselves and has a tremendous impact on our status in the world and what we can learn from history when we ask the question of what historical age is most similar to our own, the existence of a Jewish king is a very, very important factor in that consideration. The next, well, not even in order, but it's a huge consideration, would be whether or not we are living at a time where there is a mikdash. A mikdash means a sanctuary. It doesn't necessarily have to be the temple. There was a mikdash, meaning a single sanctuary dedicated as a uh, housing of the presence of God, as a centralized place of worship in Judaism, existed before the temple in Jerusalem and then existed as the temple in Jerusalem. And the question is, are we living at a time where that is the case? There was a temple in Jerusalem for well over a thousand years. And uh, prior to that, there was the Mishkan and so on. Uh, and even if we don't have it, we've got to ask ourselves, are we living in a generation where there is the ability to build it or the ability to make it? And that's a whole other consideration because as some of you would know, you have to be a... If, you're, if you don't have a mikdash, if you don't have a temple or a sanctuary, and basically King David we understand that that sanctuary has to take place in Jerusalem. If you don't have that, do you have the, even if all the other things are in place, you have control, you have everything, do you have 
a red cow. Because as we've discussed elsewhere, a red cow is really the only thing that uh, is going to help you arise out of the level of Levitical uncleanliness in order to be able to build the sanctuary to God. Uh, there are a number of things that you can do on the Temple Mount even without the Temple. You can, build the, you can bring the Paschal Sacrifice and you can do a few other things, but getting the full Temple activity going uh, is going to require you to have a red cow. And as we know, you know, every few years, someone on a ranch in Wisconsin will say, oh, I've genetically cloned a red cow, but uh, as far as we know, it hasn't actually happened yet. It's a very difficult thing to produce. And then, of course, you're going to ask yourself, are there priests? So even if you had a red cow, are you... And here's one thing which, in fact, has, has never really gone away. Uh, we have three crowns in the Jewish world. The crown of kingship, tell us the sages of the Mishnah, we have the crown of kingship, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of Torah. And the crown of kingship has kind of gone into a theoretical space. But the crown of the priesthood is still very much with us. And there's no question that if the temple was built tomorrow, there'll be no shortage of Kohanic eager beavers who would like to jump up and uh, say, and if you are a Kohen listening to this, then you should know that if they rebuild the temple, you will be a candidate for the high priesthood. So we have priests. And although we uh, are told that Elijah the prophet will come at the end of days and tell us exactly who is a Kohen and who is not a Kohen, a descendant of Aaron, because that's what a Kohen is, a male descendant of Aaron, uh, nevertheless, all priests today, everyone who has the status of Kohen is Kohen presumptive, so we assume they're Kohanim, but we need a red cow to get the temple going, even if we have the priests. And the other crown is the crown of Torah. And so the, we come back to this question, are there prophets? So are we living in an age where there are people who are actually uttering, in a very revealed way, the word of God? And that has two aspects in relation to Torah. On the one hand, the uttered statements of the prophets become the written word of Scripture, the written word of the Bible. And on the other hand, they are also embodiments of the oral Torah tradition. So, and all of the ethical concerns of the oral Torah. That's why prophets are the ones who come and put the limitations, not legal, but ethical limitations on the behavior of kings. Uh, because, uh, make no mistake, the existence of a Jewish king, as I, as I emphasized before, is a very, very impactful thing in the Jewish world. Uh, a Jewish king's word is law. If, uh, if we were living in, uh, in a Jewish theocracy in the land of Israel with the temple and with a king, and the king said everyone had to wear a face mask when they went outside and social distance 1.5 meters, I guarantee you that would be the law from the moment those words left his mouth. And that's the nature of a king. It's complete power because it is a conduit of divine power, just as the prophet is a conduit of divine word. And, of course, kings are held accountable and kings have limitation. So that three-way structure that we've looked at throughout the biblical period, uh, which is not simply defined to the biblical period, well, it is pretty much confined to the biblical period because once you have prophets, you're in the biblical period. So these are considerations that we need to look at when we look at our own. And one final kind of consideration, well, not final, but the second last consideration I'd look at would be, and this is, of course, a big one, are we in exile? Is the Jewish people living in the land of Israel 
uh, as the center of its existence? Or are we barred from the land of Israel or alienated or disenfranchised from the land of Israel and are spread throughout the world in a diaspora? And therefore, we'd have to look at the meaning of the word exile. Some very, very hardcore people will define exile at any, as any stage of Jewish history in which there is not a temple. I mean, which would mean that even though we have the state of Israel now, and even though we have Jerusalem, and even though we have Harabai, we're still in exile, according to some, which is why they continue to say the why we continue to say the prayers that we say on, on Tishab on the 17th of Tammuz and, and the 9th of Av and so on. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. On the other hand, uh, even if we were to define, uh, say, the state of Israel as the, as, as the beginning of a non-exilic state, if we want to define exile as simply a, a, an, uh, a statelessness, uh, a stateless dispersal of the Jewish people, and that that ended in 1948, uh, even if we accept that, then we can see that through vast periods of Jewish history, uh, we did not have that, and we were in fact in a state of exile. So we'd have to look at what it would be like to compare two periods where that was a factor, and that might actually mitigate against any kind of comparison. Because each of these considerations brings with it a certain consciousness. If you're living in a time of exile, you have a different consciousness about Jewish history uh, as when you're living when there is a state of Israel. And we've spoken about this before. It's very hard for us to access the consciousness of our great-grandparents who, weren't, who didn't live during the time of the state of Israel. Uh, and similarly, with all of the other considerations, they all have their own uh, particular impact on, on historical consciousness. And if we are in exile, and if there is a diaspora, what is the relationship with the diaspora? So even if we have um, a, a settlement in the land of Israel and we have a thriving diaspora, there are times where that relationship is good and there are times where that relationship is not good and that has a huge impact on Jewish history. You would know when we looked at the Gaonic period, that incredible year of 922 when Jews all over the world followed two different days for Rosh Hashanah, those who followed the rabbis in Israel and those who followed the rabbis in Babylonia. And so the, and, and the relationship between uh, the religious centers in Israel and the religious centers outside of Israel broke down. And uh, we'd have to look at that as a major criteria as well. So even when we talk about exile and we talk about diaspora, there are a great many different uh, considerations to take into account. So you can see that the candidates I'm going to give you are ones that I have thought about because I have kind of put them through the filter of all these considerations. And before I discuss those candidates, and I've covered that introduction much quicker than I thought I would. Uh, oh, I, uh, I also, on the, uh, that's another idea I left out because on the subject of uh, Torah and on the subject of uh, the prophets, that uh, even if the uh, kingship has gone into theory and the priesthood is still with us, although in a, in a slightly lesser active form, uh, nevertheless the Torah devolved from prophets to sages, and the question is, do we have a Knesset or a Sanhedrin? 
because we have had those at various stages as well. And what is their influence? Is it universally recognised? What's their impact on the way Jews are behaving? Another consideration. But overall, uh, with all of these, uh, there is one even perhaps uh, ultimate consideration that I want to bring to your attention. And that is, and it's, it's a bit of a subjective one, but I'm going to just refer to it now, and I'll probably leave it right until uh, we come back uh, later in the talk. But it, and that is, outside of any quantifiable objective conditions and circumstances, is the question of how are we behaving? Given the circumstances and the conditions that are presented to us in any age, is it possible to compare our behaviour and our actions morally and ethically in the light of those conditions. Now, the Jewish people always like to think of themselves as the good guys and as doing the right thing. But history has shown us that that is not always the case. And sometimes some generations who were utterly convinced they were doing the right thing were not. And it's very easy for us in hindsight to say, ah, oh, they were doing the wrong thing, unless we're prepared to look at ourselves and ask ourselves whether we are doing the right thing or the wrong thing at any particular stage in history. So I'm going to come back and look at that consideration as well. It's an ethical, moral consideration, as I said, subjective and open to discussion. But here's the deal. When and I know, some of you can try and hide from this, but I know who you are. When you are sitting at those dinner tables and this topic comes up of what period in Jewish history most resembles our own, I'm going to go through some candidate periods that I think are the ones that if you haven't heard of, you're going to feel awkward in the conversation. Because these are the ones that are going to come up. Whereas if you are aware of these periods, then you're going to shine in that conversation and uh, you're going to be fully informed. So that's really my aim. All the aim of all my talks is only to enable people to have uh, uh, meaningful uh, dinner table conversations and uh, without everybody flipping out uh, their phones uh, to Google basic concepts in Jewish history, which they should know already. Now, I... Uh, I'm going to start with the first one. Everybody ready for my first candidate period? Yep. Now that I've given that introduction and I've made you aware that it's not a simple topic, it's a complex topic and it has a lot of consideration. It is quite popular to say in response to that question, I'm going here in order of popularity because I've often heard it said more than once, quite often more than once, that the period of Jewish history most similar to our own is first century Judea. That is the century and the decades and the years leading up to the destruction of the Second Temple. It is absolutely packed, that period. And people go, oh, it's just like ours. Now, they say that for two reasons, and, and just, just so that I can absolutely help you identify what I'm talking about here, I want to just make one little corrective. It's a corrective to myself, and it's a corrective to others. But 
I believe it is incorrect and inappropriate to call that period first century Palestine because it wasn't Palestine. Even if you want to call it Palestine, you can only really call it Palestine from around about the middle of the second century onwards because that's what Hadrian said its name was going to be and that's what the Romans started putting on their maps. But in the first century, it wasn't Palestine. No one would have thought to call it Palestine. It was Judea. And the Romans knew it as Eudea. It was Judea and it was comprised of a number of different provinces in Judea. And the whole power structure of Judea shifted Now, the, uh, throughout the century, depending on who was in control. But for the most part, the Romans were in control. Because the Romans had come in already uh, in the middle of the previous century. And over the course of the last few decades of the, of the first century BCE, we had Herod. And the Herodian kings and his sons kind of took over after that. And uh, one of the reasons why people uh, like that period as a comparison to our own, particularly from around about the years, say, 50 through to the late 60s of that century, is because for two reasons. Now, I want everybody to hold on to their underpants. I don't want people... Losing, you got to you got to just listen to me carefully. Some people compare it because one of the things that characterized Jewish history of first century Judea was that it was highly, highly factionalized. There were a lot of different people running around with a lot of different ideas, political and spiritual. You had, of course. Still, the great split within the religious world between the Prushim, the Pharisaic factions, and the Tzdukim, the Sadducees. You also had these people, the Essenes. You had political factions, the Kanaim, the Sikari, all the moderates, all of these different types of factions. And of course, there were a number of different militias running around. And the Jewish people were existing in a state of considerable disunity. The other reason that people like on a whimsical bad day to compare to that period is because there are a number of people in the world today who believe that the Jewish people are on a train that is heading for a wreck and that they think that the state of Israel is not a thing to be taken for granted and in fact we are not that far away from its destruction. Now, that is a very depressing thought and a very alarming thought, and I'm not here to discuss its merits, but simply to bring it up as a way of uh, explaining why some people want to compare our age to them. But I don't believe they're correct. I like to, I'd like to think that they're not right. They're almost certainly not right. But it's just worth bearing in mind that if you do believe that, then first century Judea is going to appeal to you. Now, what is first century Judea? And I can hear a number of you thinking inside your heads, oh, David, it would be amazing if you had a whiteboard and you could draw a diagram of what you mean. And in fact, I heard that thought before I even started. So I'm going to show you a picture of what I'm talking about over here. Right, can everybody see that? So... 
um, you can see the big green circle that says, are we here? And so what we saw during the course of this century, and if you think about the considerations that we spoke about, first of all, in this period here, we're still in, there's still a temple and there's still a high priesthood. And that has a remarkable uh, impact and significance for how Jews feel about themselves in the world religiously and historically. Don't underestimate ever the importance of the centrality of the temple to Jewish life and worship. It really is the center of the Jewish world in almost every single respect. And what you'll notice is that during that century, it was in fact, uh, we had a Jewish king. King Agrippa, who was a grandson of Herod, was appointed king by Caligula, by Gaius Caligula. And therefore, for a while, it looked like, and didn't look like it was the case, that we regained a tremendous amount of autonomy compared to what had just been happening prior. Where you see the sons of Herod, even though Herod's sons were given, given different principalities, they weren't really allowed to call themselves king and their governance was very, very limited. Everything was pretty much controlled by Rome. For that short window of Agrippa, uh, the Romans allowed us to have autonomy through our own king. But after Agrippa died in the mid-40s, we went back to Roman rule and in the years prior to the Great Revolt would be a situation where we would, uh, the land of Israel would be the centre of the Jewish world. There was a flourishing and growing diaspora, but uh, that uh, our main conflict was the fact that we might have been to some extent in control of our own circumstances, but we were not sovereign and we were definitely not independent. The Romans ruled everything, and over the course of those couple of decades after Agrippa, they just kept squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. To give you an analogy, if we were to compare that period with our own, we would have had to surrender our autonomy completely to say, uh, well, I mean, it's easy to say the United States, but I would say, let's say it's not someone that we like as much. Let's say we surrendered our autonomy for whatever reason to Russia or to China, and they had 200,000 troops in the country of Israel, and that all political uh, dissonance was banned, all protests were banned, and that they extorted the nation through tax and other ways uh, that made uh, life uh, highly, highly intolerable politically and religiously for us in our own country. That would be a, a, a situation analogous to the events that led up to the Great Revolt. So, as impressive as uh, that comparison might be, oh, by the way, I don't know if any of the really clever ones amongst you have noticed the little joke that I have inside that chart. Can anyone work out the little bit of humour that I have there? I'm not going into it now, but those of you who are familiar with Jewish history will notice that I have written the word Josephus in a different font, that font being Times New Roman. Because <laughs> he was, of course, uh, a new Roman of the times. Okay, that's, uh, that's hilarious, David. We'll move on. All right, so what we have found is this. Uh, so 
what ultimately, and this is the beautiful thing about the candidates I'm going to show you, because we're going to take the weakest point of one level, of one period, and we're going to make that the strength of the next. So what would be the weakest point that we could identify about that period for the purpose of comparison with our own age? And it would likely be that we did not have... Uh, that, well, <laughs> at the end of the day, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to the main thing. And that is that we are not coming out of exile. We're about to go into it. We are not rebuilding in that period. We are on the eve of destruction. If we go back to it, we can see. The great revolt and the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is right around the corner. We are heading towards it. And on the assumption that our age, which has seen a return to the land of Israel, a return to the land of Israel, a rebuilding of Israel, a rebuilding of Jerusalem, that that really would be the main reason why you would not want to compare those two, even if you think that you sound very clever at the dinner party when you do. Those, of the, 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 those who claim that, and, and you can do this in my name, you can slap them down and you can say, I don't think so. But nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, it's worthy of talking about. Now, I'm going to talk about another candidate. I'm going to talk about my second candidate. So let's look at a period, if we want to compare, what is the most dominant thing that happened in our age? If you're going to have to say, it's going to probably have to be uh, the return to the land of Israel, because that is, that is just an astonishing uh, miracle of history that we sometimes, when we wander around Chadston, uh, on a Thursday afternoon with our mask on, we don't always realise, but at the end of the day, that is miraculous. And so is there, is there a period where we can look at, where we look at how we managed and what were the circumstances uh, following a miraculous return? And of course, you're going, the next most popular choice is probably going to be uh, the decree of Cyrus. Now, uh, that of course belongs to the 6th century BCE and that is a generation that we call the generation of Shivat Zion, the generation of the return of Zion. It comes right at the end of the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile, and the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians and Cyrus gets up and he goes, Ah! Oh, the Jews can return and they can go back to the Jerusalem and they can rebuild the temple. And so we did. Not all of us, of course. And that's kind of a similar situation. There was a first wave of Aliyah of about 40,000 people headed by Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of the last king. So those considerations were there. And we went back to Jerusalem and we rebuilt the temple. So there is a much stronger case to say that that's comparative to our own age. In 1948, we came out of exile. The state of Israel was established and declared. And uh, since then, we've acquired Jerusalem, we've acquired the Temple Mount, 
and we haven't built the temple yet, we haven't set up any kingship structures, but we are in that intermediate phase. Now, I'm going to show you that phase in a chart so that you can see why, what the considerations are that pertain to that. So let me show you that chart now, because uh, I made some nice charts. Whoa, no, 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 no. That wasn't where I was meant to go. Go there. Where am I? Oh, here I'm meant to go. Right, okay. So let's look at this, all right? So over here we can see we have Nebuchadnezzar and we have Zedekiah Zedekiah, the last king. We have the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The temple is destroyed and then we are in exile in Babylon. Here's the decree of Cyrus. And so the question would be, are we here? Are we in the few decades following the return of Zion? So are we in those decades? So let's go back to the chart. So on the one hand, we've got all those similarities. Yep. We're coming out here. We're coming. We've had the decree of Cyrus. Now, I like to talk about the decree of Cyrus as something similar to the Balfour Declaration. I, I, I have heard it said recently that... Um, but, you know, especially in the last couple of years, that people were comparing Cyrus to Trump. Now, I don't, I don't normally launch into political aspects of today, but it's unavoidable in this talk. Uh, I'm here to tell you, Trump is not Cyrus. Uh, if if Trump was anybody, he's a hashverosh, uh, as uh, I think is very, very clear. I mean, if if he split up with Melania and someone came to him and said, you know, it's the right of every president. Uh, in the White House to have sex with every virgin in the United States until he finds the right wife. Uh, I don't think Trump's going to say, no, nah, I don't need that. However, uh, Trump is Ahasuerus in other ways I'm not going into now, but he's not Cyrus. Cyrus, if anything in our generation, is much more likely to be closer to what happened with the Balfour Declaration and the realizer and subsequently uh, the birth of the State of Israel in, uh, in, with, the, with the agreement and accord of the United Nations as, uh, as much more uh, approximating uh, what the effect of, of Cyrus's decree was on, on the Jewish people. And we came back. However, however, it's important to realize that there's one fundamental, or there's two fundamental differences, uh, but there's one that I specifically want to talk about. One of the fundamental differences, are, the, the lesser one I'll mention first, in my opinion, is the fact that if you look carefully at this period, you will see that there are still prophets. In that period of the post-Cyrus declaration, we had prophecy, and we had the last of the prophets of Israel, who were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who appeared after the exile, and it was Haggai particularly who got the temple going. But that's not necessarily any different from today, because today we might people have people who are running around going, you have to build the temple, eight beat Hashem lihibanot, you've got to build the temple now, you've got to build the temple now. And in hindsight, i.e. in a few hundred years' time, people will go, oh, that person was a prophet, because he said they need to build the temple, and they built the temple. So I'm not excluding the, excluding the fact that maybe there are prophets, but there is one very fundamental difference between the generation of the return from, to Zion and ours. And that is that despite all this very impressive building of the second temple and the return to Zion, 
we are not sovereign and independent in our own land. We are not sovereign and independent. We are at the end of the day here, a kind of a, a vassal colony of the vast Persian Empire. I mean, Zerubbabel does not even take on the title of king. In fact, he's referred to as Fahat Yehuda. So he is the governor of Judah. And he's given that. He's recognized that he is of royal descent and that he is a Davidic candidate and so on. But the Persians ultimately are the ones in charge. We can't rebel against them. We probably uh, have to pay a few good taxes to keep them uh, happy. Uh, we certainly have to uh, be abiding by the major tenets of uh, what the Persians would regard as good behavior. And we uh, need to contribute to their army and to their wars, which is a, generally a condition of being uh, a vassal entity. So although we had a kind of a state uh, entity, we, uh, you know, Midinat Yehud was recognized as its own state and its own territory, we didn't have complete autonomy. And I think on that reason alone, uh, it's sometimes difficult, as, as impressive and as seductive as it is to want to say that we are replicating Shivat Zion, and in many ways we are, in many ways we are, and, and, and make no mistake, the miracle of 1948 was uh, no less and perhaps even more astonishing than the miracle of the decree of Cyrus. Nevertheless, now we are completely autonomous. And then we were still under the control of Persia. So let's take that weakness and let's make it a strength of the next candidate we look at. Because let's look at a period where we were absolutely autonomous and completely independent in the land of Israel. We had control. We had sovereignty. And uh, let's make that uh, the main... And, and what we're going to look at, of course, is the last time we really had a kind of a Jewish a republic in the land of Israel. And that is, as I'm sure you've all guessed, I'm going to talk about the Hasmonean period. And the Hasmoneans, and I'll, I'm going to get that... Uh, hold on one second. I'm going to get that uh, chart up because uh, that will give it to you uh, straight away. So uh, let me just talk to that chart for a moment. Now, as some of you would be aware, there was this thing called Hanukkah. And that happens kind of like around 165, 164 BCE. And it didn't happen overnight, but over the course of the next few decades, uh, we develop into this entirely independent Jewish kingdom that was a player. It was an equal player uh, with the other great powers that were around. And in fact, um, I mean, they had Judah Maccabee even and his successors had treaties with Rome as equals. Obviously, Rome was uh, happy to use this uh, Jewish kingdom, priestly kingdom, as a pawn in their own political machinations with the you know, vestiges, dying vestiges of the of the Seleucid Empire, but nevertheless, uh, and, and in the power politics that Rome was playing before Rome finally entered into the Levant uh, in the following century. But in that period, we were independent. And if you look, by the time you get, by the time you get to uh, John Hyrcanus, 
Uh, I mean, he's got, he's got total power. He's not yet a king, but his sons, Yehud Aristobulus I and then Alexander Yanai, are definitely going to go ahead and call themselves king. And they are not of Davidic descent, obviously. They are Kohanic, the descendants of Aaron. They are priests. So they created this kind of uh, priestly kingdom that combined all of the power structures, both religious and political, in one person. And that person uh, was uh, a total a dictator. Uh, and it was a rule by uh, theocracy and autocracy. And it's that period... Well, that's a kind of a bit of a fundamental difference between us. But what I'm looking at now are the similarities in terms of the fact that here we have, in Jewish history, a completely independent state. And in fact, it goes further than that because um, many of the symbols of the state of Israel today are taken from the Hasmonean state, you know, such as uh, the menorah and so on, uh, many of which are all of which are Hasmonean symbols. And the fact that the Hasmoneans were pretty uh, impressed with military values. There was a huge emphasis on the military aspects of culture. The army was extremely important, uh, both in maintaining order within, but also... Uh, without and to fulfilling the expansionist aims of various Hasmonean kings. As I've often said, and I've said elsewhere, that uh, Alexander Yanai was, uh, would have made, uh, well, he was Ariel Sharon on crack. He would have made any Israeli general blush with his territorial ambitions. And he uh, effectively turned... Uh, is John Hyrcanus and Alexander Yano between them uh, turned Israel into a very serious power in the Levant uh, that, for all we know, uh, could have kept expanding uh, if not for the fact that uh, they were, on the one hand, riven by internal factional fights and the fact that the Romans, at the end of the day, were just too big and powerful and brutal. So... Uh, that is, now, what would therefore be the reason why we would not say, uh, okay, the Hasmoneans, there are the Jews, uh, they are living as an independent entity in the land of Israel, uh, there is a bit of a diaspora, not, uh, not as much, obviously we're still a couple of hundred years before uh, the thriving diasporas that we see emerge in first century Judea, in the first century, but there's a bit of a diaspora, but for the most part, Jews are in the land of Israel, and we are completely independent with our own governance structures. And probably the biggest difference there is going to be, on the one hand, the fact that uh, those governance structures are uh, highly autocratic. And, I mean, no society is ever that far away from autocracy, so uh, that's not necessarily a, a mitigating factor. But one thing which definitely is and a massive difference between us and the Hasmonean state, is that the Hasmonean state is founded on the existence of the temple. So it, they didn't even have to build it. The temple was a, 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 a pre-existent condition of the whole Hasmonean purpose. The Hasmoneans were priests that created a priestly kingdom, and they did that using the temple as their primary focus of political and religious power.
Uh, some of you who are a little bit uh, alarmed and offended by the casual way in which I seem to uh, talk about the Hasmoneans should be aware of my view and the view of many historians that uh, Hanukkah is about uh, is really the warm, fluffy PR exercise of the Hasmoneans. For the most part, they were a disaster. They were, of course, amazing at the end, uh, towards the end, uh, with the reign of Shlomtzion Hamalka. One of the things that the Hasmoneans did was to, and we've seen this in many places, was to uh, push forward and raise the status of women. And so they were able actually to produce uh, a, a queen whose rule was regarded by everybody as exceptional. Uh, but even if we look at Shlomtzion Hamalka, who was an exceptional ruler and who might have even been someone that people would be happy to be ruled over by today, um, nevertheless, the fundamental difference is between us and them is that they have the temple. And if you have the temple, you have a certain consciousness about the sanctity and centrality of your holy places. And the priesthood obviously is up and running and it's functioning and you uh, have wars that that priesthood kingdom is fighting and you're expanding. Uh, and you are, I mean, <laughs> those who deal in the discourse of wanting the, uh, to explain sometimes why contemporary Israel uh, emphasizes uh, it's military so much and obviously we explain that by virtue of the fact that Israel exists under existential threat um, are often asked well what would the, how would the Jews behave if they weren't under such existential threat and uh, you don't want to look too closely at the Hasmoneans because they're um, expansionist and uh, territorialist aims were uh, were um, not modest. And maybe you could say, well, that was a product of its time. What they're really doing is they are uh, expanding their territory in order and conquering other nations in order to create you know, a bulwark of security and defense around them, however you want to explain that. But it is not the case that Jews are these passive people that wander around that only pick up arms when they have to. I want to dispel that because sometimes when people make comparisons, we need to be a little bit realistic. Pa the abuse of power, the abuse of power, no one has a monopoly on that and no one has a monopoly on not having it. It's a very hard thing to achieve to not abuse power when you have it, even with the best of intentions. So that's something that we need to uh, need to keep uh, bearing in mind. But the Hasmoneans, very impressive kingdom for about a century of priests. So I'm going to put that as I'm going to deconstruct the Hasmoneans because it's got a kind of an outward similarity to our own period, but with the existence of the temple and uh, the lack of limitations for most of it on its uh, expansionist aims kind of don't really uh, gel with the concerns, major concerns of, of our era. Uh, and so I'm going to now go to a much more obscure period. This you would have, this is not yet where I believe uh, we are located, but I'm going to go and I'm going to show you this one. 
And this will be a little bit more obscure. Those of you who've been following me so far going, oh, yes, no, I'm familiar with that. Yep, fair enough, familiar with that, fair enough, familiar with that, fair enough. Well, let's see how you go with this one because uh, it is, some people think that if we had nothing to do with independent statehood from the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 up until 1948, uh, but it's not entirely true. Obviously, there were a couple of little bubbles. One of them I didn't do a chart of because it was so brief, and that, of course, was the 4th century return in around about the year 364 under the Emperor Julian the Apostate, who, unlike his predecessors who were Christian, decided that he didn't want to be a Christian. He wanted it. It was much more fun and much more interesting being a pagan. And if you're a pagan king in the middle of the 14th century, not just a pagan king, pagan emperor of Rome in the middle of the 14th century, it'd be a, be a bit... <laughs> be a bit like waking up in the 21st century as a worshipper of Zeus, uh, what you would do if you wanted to annoy the Christians would be to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so Julian did that. But of course, as you all know, uh, that project did not end in success. And uh, uh, we tried, but uh, there were all sorts of explosions on the Temple Mount uh, it was a very weird set of circumstances. We tried again, more explosions. We can't really account for it. And uh, when, when we say explosions, um, I know people are thinking, well, how is that? They didn't have dynamite or TNT, but there were explosions. There were, I don't know, trapped methane or whatever it was under the Temple Mount, huge balls of fire. People write about this. And shortly after, Julian died. So it's not a long enough period for us to be able to assess uh, whether or not uh, there is a comparison between that and our own. But one thing is interesting is this, is that as, unlike our own generation, as soon as those people that were given permission by Julian to return to Jerusalem, returned to Jerusalem, the first thing they did was to start to clear away the debris on the Temple Mount and to rebuild the temple. It wasn't seen as an afterthought, oh, let's get the state going, let's get things organised here, Let's secure ourselves. Let's get a, a shtickle parnosa going. Let's get some income. Let's get a viable economy. Let's set up our basic social infrastructure and then we'll think about the temple, which was the mistake made, according to the prophet Haggai, by the returnees to Zion under the Cyrus decree. But in fact, they went straight away and started building the temple without any hesitation because Julian said you can build the temple. But the one I'm going to look at in a few, in a little bit more detail, uh, is the uh, short-lived state of Nehemiah ben Chushiel uh, at the, uh, towards the beginning of the seventh century, which is just prior, just prior to the rise of Islam. And some of you would be familiar with that period. Um, I'm going to bring up a chart. I'll just show you what I'm talking about. So here's another, here is another candidate, and it's this. So we know that in the last decades of the 6th century, in the early decades of the 7th, uh, the Byzantine and Sassanid empires, based on the one hand in Constantinople and the other hand in Persia, were fighting a lot of wars, and at the centre of those concerns was, of course, the Levant. And uh, many historians actually blame the 
depletion of economies and resources and the exhaustion of populations as a result of the Byzantine Sassanid Wars as a part of the background that explains the uh, phenomenal success of the spread of Islam and the rise of the message of Muhammad. But it is precisely during that period, between about 614 and 617, when as part of the advancing Persian army into the Levant, that we were, in return for our support, the support of Jewish militias, and there were Jewish militias spread right throughout the Middle East and right throughout Arabia. There were independent Jewish states right throughout Arabia at different times. We've spoken about this in other talks in terms of the background uh, to the rise of Islam. Arabia at the time was much more Jewishly influenced than uh, many historians realize, when they're realizing now, and that um, there were numerous Jewish militias. Those Jewish militias were coordinated in an organized campaign to help the Persians recapture the land of Israel from Byzantium. And in return for which, uh, the nominal leader of the Jewish world at the time was certainly the Jewish militia effort to, uh, to help the Persians recapture the land of Israel was Nehemiah ben Chushiel. We have a few Midrashim even that allude to the fact that he was a messianic figure. He wasn't just a military figure. He was someone who was seen as, this is it. Here's the guy who's going to lead us back to retake the land of Israel and we're going to take Jerusalem and we're going to rebuild the temple and so on. And so they do that. And so Nehemiah ben Chushiel and the Jewish militias help the Persians retake Jerusalem in 614 and they set up their own state. Now several interesting aspects to that uh, which... Um, so, so, which, which, which might mitigate uh, against a comparison. Because um, although this state only lasted for about three years, uh, we were given um, a kind of complete autonomy. I wouldn't necessarily say that we would have felt independent, sovereign and independent from uh, the major Sassanid Empire forces, who I'm sure would have been able to crush us. But we were granted full autonomy in Jerusalem to uh, see it and to rebuild it or, uh, how we saw fit. But that state came to an end because the deal between the Sassanids and the Byzantines basically sold us out and uh, the land of Israel was basically given back to Byzantium as part of a much bigger picture deal. We were sold out in, in, in many ways. In many ways, the Jews of the 7th century were much more like the Kurds of the late 20th and early 21st century. The parallels between the Jews of then and the Kurds of now is astonishing. But uh, the state didn't last. And yet, when we look at it a little closer, we might be able to say that that was not necessarily a bad thing. Because we did not behave well. Um... I know that a lot of this material, those of you who are listening who've read books on this, especially ones written recently, will be saying, David, aren't you aware that a lot of that material is under revision? I'm aware it's under revision. I'm aware that people are finding different things about it all the time. But the overall picture doesn't uh, seem to have changed from the fact that 
we behaved terribly in that state because the first one of the first things that we did was we went round killing non-Jews and we basically you know we decimated the Christian population of Jerusalem. Now it's all very well to say, oh, but that's what people do. I mean, they did it then, they do it now. They come in. I mean, if they'd come in, they would have killed us. Yes. But, I mean, and that, and that picture was going back and forth basically until Saladin. It was Saladin who broke that mould by saying that Jews and Christians can live in Jerusalem. And that's not for another, uh, that's not for another, uh, you know, 500, 600 years. So we're still in a world where that was kind of seen as that's what you do. You move in and you kill your enemies before you start setting up your state rather than actually trying to be inclusive. And I'm not sure... And, and, of course, that had bad karma because when the state was sold back to the Christians, uh, they, of course, took massive revenge on the Jews as well. So it was an awful time, and we didn't necessarily behave in a way that brought credit to the Jewish people uh, when we took uh, when we set up that state under Nehemiah bin Hushiel. Moreover, uh, moreover, we didn't build the temple, and we didn't really make any effort to build the temple. So the comparisons are limited. I like to think of the state of Israel today as being a Western modern democracy that is subject to a certain amount of criticism, but at the end of the day, uh, it's um, a state that, that recognises and respects the value of human life and uh, the process of law. And uh, Nehemiah bin Hushiel's state didn't necessarily seem to do that. Now, don't get offended. If you want to read those books on that period or read anything on that period and come back and challenge me and have a discussion, I'm very happy with it. But I think the picture that I've painted of, of Nehemiah ben Hushiel's state is a reasonable one. I don't want to go into it too much because it was only three years long. But some people like to compare our age with that one. Uh, and I would hope to say that the primary difference is in the way we are behaving uh, towards the minorities that are under our uh, control. So that even if we don't always behave in the best possible way, and I don't think that the behaviour of the State of Israel towards the minorities, under non-Jewish minorities under its care, is exemplary, but it is defensible. And it is defensible because Israel applies a process of law and respect for the dignity of human life as a central value. Whether it gets that right every time or not is a separate issue. So those values were not apparently at the core of Nehemiah ben Hushiel's state. But I want to come now to... I've gone through several candidates. So just to remind you, I looked at first century Judea. I looked at... Uh, 6th century BCE, Medinat Yehud, under the Cyrus Decree. We looked at the Hasmonean Kingdom, and we looked at the state of Nehemiah ben Hushiel. And all of them seem to have one aspect or other that doesn't quite fit with our age. But I have a candidate that I think is closer than all of them. It's obviously not exact, but it's close. And this is the one that I'm hoping uh, will both uh, alarm and inspire you. Because I actually believe that we are here. If you look carefully at this, obviously I'm talking about the period of Sefer Shoftim. So I've gone to the biblical. And here we have a remarkable set of comparisons. 
we have just come out of a difficult exile. And we have returned to the land of Israel. Because remember, the Yitziat Mitzrayim, the going out of Egypt, was not merely an exodus from Egypt. It was a return to the land of Israel. The ultimate return to the land of Israel actually uh, <laughs> is embodied in the story of Jacob going back even further. Remember I said that everything the patriarchs did was done in subsequent generations. And a number of people have noted that there are similarities between the 20 years that Jacob spent with his father-in-law Lavan in Haran to the 2,000 years of exile that we went through from the destruction of the temple to the rise of the state of Israel. And that the return of Jacob to the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, after that sojourn is very similar to our return to the land of Israel. But let's stay in the biblical, let's go a bit forward. Because in the time of the judges, we have just come out of this exile. And we are now in the middle of a project of settling and conquering the land. It's going to take a couple of centuries at least. Our main enemy during that period are a people whose spiritual and cultural center is in Gaza. They are called the Philistines. And we are fighting a series of wars with them as two peoples. Philistia, which was a military pentapolis comprised of a number of different types of peoples. But the Philistines and this kind of a nascent Semitic monotheistic entity uh, in the land called Israel, which was not a centralized structure, but a loose confederation of tribes that shared a common origin and origin story, and that those two nations are competing for survival over one land. There is no temple. There is a sanctuary, but we don't have Jerusalem yet. And we, what is just around the corner is a shifting of the entire geopolitical, or, or rather the political, well, the geopolitical sh uh, shape of the world is, is shifting because we've just had, just previous, I mean, round about here, in the early period of the Judges, is that series of events known as the catastrophe right across the Middle East. But I'm putting us more or less here, round about the time of Samson, uh, and maybe just before the rise of the prophet Samuel, who is going to be the one who's going to anoint Israel's first king, who is going to unite the tribes into a centralized authority. Just prior to that is a period where we're told by the Tanakh many times, Ein Melech Israel. there's no king in Israel, there's just a bunch of, you know, uh, gung-ho generals running around. Uh, people uh, were fighting the Philistines and fighting other enemies elsewhere, <coughs> uh, using the resources that they could. This was a fight for survival between nations over a land. There's no temple there's no king, and no one's entirely sure uh, what they should be doing or what direction it's going to go. And so let's look at that period, and then we come back, and I've got one more chart to show you because I this is kind of interesting, and that is that, um, and if we, uh, if we, I mean, I mean, have a look at this. I've, I, I don't know, I don't know 
we, we would probably need another talk just on this to explain what I mean. But to me, uh, the book of Shoftim is a book that when you read it, it, it seems to embody the same types of values uh, that uh, Israel is uh, going through at the moment with uh, the possibly large exception of the fact that there is no diaspora to speak of in the time of the judges. Uh, the idea of being, uh, if you were a Yehudi, if you were a Jew in the time of the judges, it would mean that you were of the tribe of Judah. Uh, most people outside of that would have called themselves a man of, or a person of Israel and they would have belonged to one of the tribes. The tribes had no natural affiliation other than whatever loyalties uh, they set up. But I want to show you I want to show you one last chart in which I thought it would only be fair to uh, do a similar representation uh, of our own age. And that if we were to do that, and if we were to look at this in 500 years' time, it would look something like this. So we have uh, just come out of a long exile. I mean, that, that red block in the left-hand corner is going to go all the way, or it's going to go about a metre that way. Um, we obviously, uh, the Shoah is going to be indicated on any map, but then you'll see remarkably Declaration of Independence, Medinat Yisrael, which seems to, on the one hand, to replicate the Cyrus Decree, Medinat Yehud, um, and we have control over Jerusalem. We have control over Jerusalem, So, and we have control over Har Habayit. We have control over the Temple Mount. So in a way, we're taking kind of like the best of all of the ages of history and combining them all together. Uh, do we have complete sovereign autonomy in the land of Israel, like the Hasmoneans had, like the kings of the first temple period had? Yes, we do. Do we have uh, control? Do we have control? We do. Do we have autonomy, sovereignty? We do. Do we have control over Jerusalem and the Temple Mount? And the answer is, we do. We do. And bear in mind that the fact that the state of Israel recognizes the authority of the waqf on the Temple Mount is a policy of the state of Israel. It's not a reflection of what Israel could do. If Israel wanted to take the Temple Mount, it could take it in about 30 seconds. So it, we do have control over Harabayit, but we have not yet built the Temple. We have not yet organized ourselves a king. And we may not. I mean, we can't tell history f before it happens. But the uh, Jewish people are... Uh, I, I mean, I just, I, I, I just want to touch on, on, on our own period in, in another way as well, because I, 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 I'm holding back from saying this, but I, I'm going to say it. Uh, you, you, you'd be forgiven for asking the question, is our own similar to our own? And I want to uh, highlight the fact that there is a very, very different set of dynamics at play prior to 1967 uh, and post-1967. Because the existence of the Temple Mount uh, in our control uh, is a very, very significant factor in Jewish history. Very significant. 
And we saw that. We saw that with Nehemiah ben Chushiel, but we saw that with the people under Julian the Apostate. Uh, and every significant time in Jewish history where the rules get changed is we have control over Harabait. But we can't build the temple. And we can't build the temple uh, because we don't have a red cow on the one hand. I'm fairly certain that if all the other conditions were met, a red cow would suddenly appear. I don't think that's going to be a major issue. The major issue is, is that we live in a world at the moment where if the Jewish people build the temple, if they were to erase uh, or destroy what exists there already and to build the temple... It would not bring peace to the world. It would not bring the Jewish people to the fulfillment of their ultimate purpose. Not in the current world anyway. I mean, there are some who disagree, many disagree, and they would say, that's nonsense. Israel should go up there and just do it. But the key factor there is most certainly the absence of prophets. It wasn't like for the people that came back under the Cyrus decree who were told by the prophets of Israel, by Haggai, by Zechariah, go and build the temple. Now's the time to build the temple. It's really important. We don't have that kind of open spiritual leadership. We have a Sanhedrin that is for all, and I hope no one's offended when I say this, but it lacks credibility in the Jewish world and most people have never even heard of it. We have great sages, but none of the sages of Israel are openly saying to anyone that we should rebuild the temple. And that maybe I'm not rebuilding the temple at the moment is in fact a hallmark of the new character of the Jewish people in the state of Israel as a people that is aware and respectful of the religious rights and sensitivities of others. And that maybe that's a good thing. Because if you don't think it's a good thing, then there's only other one, one other position you should take. And that is that we should build the temple. And therefore you've got to, you'll bring yourself full circle into asking uh, where that is going to lead us at the end of the day. I really believe that the Jewish people from 1948, and we saw, those of you who are familiar know that I divide Jewish history, I don't divide it, it's divided into these 500-year epochs. And it would seem very much, especially to those of us who lived through it, that the 500-year epoch of what we call the Acharonim, that more or less started towards the end of the, fifth, the, the 15th, beginning of the 16th century, with the whole of the modern age, uh, really came to an end in around about 1990. From 1990, the world onwards, ever since, say, the first Gulf War, uh, the world has seemed in some ways uh, to have become a different place. I'm not just talking about the rise of the internet and all of the other amazing changes that have happened in the world, but in a geopolitical sense, the end of the Cold War, we've seen the, we've seen, I mean, the, the Gaon of Vilna, as I've said, talks about the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau as a reconciliation between Judaism and Christianity, which also happened in the second half of the 20th century. And so, to me, we stand right now 
with a tremendous potential and a tremendous uh, opportunity to, uh, in a way, we're about to go through the processes that those who lived through the time of the judges went through. And that is that we are going to ultimately see uh, the coalescence of uh, Jewish political leadership uh, into an awareness of the true destiny of the Jewish people, which is what the idea of a king is. I don't think anyone wants the wrong kind of king. But if we can find a leadership that genuinely reflects uh, the purpose of the Jewish people in the world, which is to bring peace to the world and to bring the awareness of God into the world uh, and ultimately to ensure ethical and moral behavior on behalf of the Jewish people in respect to all humankind, which really is what <laughs> the... Uh, the, the project of King David was, the project of David HaMelech. If you read the story of David HaMelech carefully, you'll see that he was constantly on guard against abuse of people's dignities, whether they were Israelites or not, and that he made justice a foundational quality of, uh, of, of, his, of his state and his kingdom. But that took some doing. And right now we are still in the war with the Philistines. Uh, we are looking for Samsons. We are looking for heroes, looking for military heroes. What we need, of course, is the intermediary figure, the Shmuel, the Samuel, that is going to come and transition us from this period of uh, military anarchy and judges and generals. Judges and generals, basically, is what you could call that period, uh, to bring us a greater vision of what the Jewish people could be in the world, because the, the kingdom of David, of course, becomes the kingdom of Shlomo. It becomes the kingdom of Solomon and the kingdom of the temple, and that is where the temple ultimately becomes a center of prayer and worship for all nations. You all know where this is going. It's my pet rave about the fact that ultimately the United Nations should be in Jerusalem, and that the whole industry of Israel and Jerusalem should be dedicated towards conflict resolution and world peace and world subsistence and stability of food and, and uh, livelihood for all dignity for all people on earth, a kind of a big center of human progress studies, and that anyone uh, can go into Jerusalem if they're prepared to go in there in peace and to worship uh, uh, the one God of the universe, and that that is what Jerusalem's purpose is. And when we come to realize that, then obviously, uh, as they famously say, the temple will build itself. So I thank you for that absolute kind of frolic through different periods in history. Uh, obviously, this has been my take on it, but what I was hoping, I'm not expecting everyone to agree with me on every phase that I've discussed or how I broke it down, but what I wanted to do was to highlight the importance of the question and to unpack a lot of the issues surrounding it. And I, uh, I hope that that has been of, of benefit to you, even as a way of revision of things that uh, you doubtless already knew. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.